Welcome to the HR Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR and talent communities to you. Most of us are trying to ensure our organizations are as inclusive and equitable as humanly possible. But do you worry that by implementing a DNI strategy, you could fail and that will reflect poorly on your leadership? Are you struggling to figure out how to create financial gains from diversity and inclusion initiatives? Are you looking for ways to create a sense of belonging and avoid any harassment issues at your workplace? In this HR chat interview, we're going to focus on how leaders can drive a lasting shift in workplace culture that will engage employees and lead to higher economic returns. My guest this time is Kelly Cooper, founder and CEO of the Centre for Social Intelligence. Kelly's experience spans from most often being the token female in her early days working in a science and engineering firm to being on the Canadian delegation for UN meetings to address gender diversity in the 1990s, to starting her own business to shed light on this more important topic. Each step of her career journey is peppered with challenges in the workplace from sexual harassment to pay inequity, which she eventually overcame by diplomatically clarifying boundaries, finding her voice and working with the leadership to affect change. Kelly has recently published a book called Lead the Change, the competitive advantage of gender diversity and inclusion that targets the C-suite to explain the value proposition of GDI and provides a blueprint for how to take action. It is an easy to read and very understandable book that takes away the mumbo jumbo on this topic and succinctly explains the business advantage of taking action on this important workplace culture shift. So I think you should check it out. And we're definitely going to talk about that today. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. That was a pretty long intro there, Kelly. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> but beyond my beyond my reintroduction there, please share a bit more about yourself and, and what makes you get up every morning. Sure. So I guess it's best to start with the fact that I, I came from a, a traditional family home. I'm the youngest of five. I had three older brothers. Two of them were significantly older than me, uh, 10 and 12 years older. So it was kind of like having two other dads because of that age gap. And what it meant is I was exposed to how guys think probably too much, what makes them tick and how to engage them without getting shoved aside. It also meant I was able to get insights on how to deal with men and how they perceive women. They were a bit tough on me at times. Um, they had dominant opinions. They interrupted me all the time, always thought they were right, that sort of thing. Uh, so I had to learn to survive. I had to speak up for myself, set boundaries and hold my own. It also taught me, though, to be one of the guys and to talk their language. At the time, I was thinking, like, why can't I have sisters? Um, but looking back now, I could see the experience gave me a thicker skin, uh, helped me to think in a logical and clear manner and, and to not be afraid to speak up. And uh, I've been working with leaders and executives now for almost 10 years on diversity and inclusion. And I can now see how my childhood has helped me with engaging with these men. Because they started questioning me and what I'm doing. And by the end of the, the talk, we're, we're having another opportunity set up to speak about how I can help them to affect change in their organization. Um, so I guess that explains a bit about my personal perspective on why I'm doing this work. But the other angle is that I watch the news every day and I see some crazy workplace story that just blows my mind. It could be 
like lawsuits stemming from sexual harassment, like that guy who uh, indecently exposed himself on a work-related video call last year, you may recall, or pay inequities. And I've experienced both of these myself, um, being harassed at work and pay inequities. So just seeing this repeat and repeat, it's like, wow, this happens all the time. We have to deal with this in a way that, that the change actually sticks. So, you know, I want to see, uh, I'm propelled every day, I guess, to, to know what I can do to make a difference in changing the workplace culture. That gets people recognizing how their behavior is impacting not only the people around them, but the bottom line. And it's the bottom line conversation that gets executives sitting up straight. People are slowly beginning to understand the business advantage of diversity and inclusion. Okay, thank you very much. So um, what was your approach to leading DNI? Well, so my work engages leaders and executives, essentially the whole C-suite across all aspects of a given sector, the public, private, not-for-profits, on why this issue is important to them from a value proposition point of view. And I'm going to share a few stats with you about that. So according to Deloitte, we have they say um, organizations with an inclusive culture are twice as likely to meet or exceed financial targets, three times as likely to be high performing, six times to be more likely to be innovative and agile, and eight times more likely to achieve better business outcomes. These are, these are important statistics that made people sit up. But the second thing, which people don't talk about as much, is the cost of inaction. Nobody really speaks about it, um, but the cost of inaction is quite expensive. So these lawsuits I referenced, um, the sexual harassment lawsuits are huge. I list many of these examples in my book from companies like Google to McDonald's to Walmart, Fox News. I mean, it's everywhere and it costs a lot of money, way more money than if you did something effective to prevent it with some training. And these lawsuits, I mean, they affect your reputation and brand and leaders don't look nearly as leaderly when this happens. And it's an embarrassment for all those who work there too. And the other thing I do in terms of tackling uh, DNI or the approach I take is to explain the benefits to men of diversity and inclusion. And many people stumble on this when I talk about this and I, I talk about benefits. And I reference this too in my book. But um, men are often defined as the, the breadwinners in their families. And as a result, they have different stresses on themselves than women do. And they're likely to be less connected to their families as a result because their focus is really on the workplace. And I tie this to um, the death gap because men often die earlier than women and have high suicide rates. So being able to level the playing field for men by sharing the responsibility of bringing home the bacon, creating that safe space for them at work to feel they can take parental leave too, that it won't limit their career if they cut out at four o'clock to watch their son or daughter play a sport or attend an event. And let them know that parental leave policies are there not just for women, but for men. And giving them the opportunity to connect more with their family. And this all adds up to a more equitable way of operating our lives. So it gets the conversation going on, um, on just how to look at this from an economic point of view. Let's talk a bit about the, the Centre for Social Intelligence. It, it focuses on eliminating resistance to DNI. How is that done and uh, what can that resistance look like? Well, I think we need to start with why people resist. And it's usually because they have a lack of awareness. Uh, they fear they will be, there will be an impact on their job or their role in the organisation. 
there may be a poor history of the company doing anything before on this issue. So they've lost faith that anything's going to happen now that sticks. So why put the effort in? And there isn't usually the, the incredibly important visible support and commitment from the C-suite um, and managers that is needed for people to buy in. So overcoming resistance starts with understanding what it looks like. And from there, you can share tactics on how to overcome it. So example, for example, um, you hear resistance when people say something like, there's no problem here, or this isn't a priority right now. Um, and these are comments that people are like, uh, they just lack the knowing of the value of it. And it gets back to the economics because that's unfortunately, that's what drives people, right? So I mean, we've had this discussion on the importance of equality in our society for hundreds of years, but getting traction on this issue, I think is happening because of the economic explanations. So there are many replies that we hear um, that stonewall the conversation, making it hard for someone to resurface it again. But the way I address it is, um, is a two-pronged approach. So one is at the corporate level. It's dealing with DNI or diversity inclusion in a systems approach, not just seeing this as an issue that's siloed off as an HR responsibility to sort out, but seeing it as a leadership, HR and communications co-led initiative. And there are many components to leading an organization through this effectively and sustainably, like setting up a champions team across the organization at each level to be the, the ambassadors to this effort. There's a lot to go into it, um, more than we have time today, but a coordinated executive level on, of effort is, is needed as one of these prongs, in my opinion. And leaders have to be visible on this issue and engage employees frequently on the vision of the organization, speaking to the short, the medium, the long-term goals that affect the employees, um, and showcase success stories and provide awards and recognition for behaviors that support DNI. People need to see it become real and they need to be empowered to be part of the solution and feel like they're contributing. So that's one aspect. And the, the second aspect or the second prong to this is, is working with the individual. So individuals by their nature, as you know, Bill, more often than not resist change. And in today's day and age, change is constantly happening all around us. People have a limit to what they can absorb though. So affecting a culture change has to be with eyes wide open that people will likely be hesitant to have to learn another thing. So training has to be put in place though to empower people to not only understand the reason that it's important to them um, in their social circles, but also how there's a benefit to have diverse teams for the company too. That's the, again, the financial aspect. And then for those resisting the winds of change that are going on all around them, they require coaching to get to the root fears that are causing them to be resistant. And one-on-one -on -one conversations allow for a safe space to air misperceptions and course correct them in a thoughtful manner. Now let's talk about a couple of seemingly similar but actually different concepts, Kelly. Um, in your opinion, what is the difference between traditional leadership and inclusive leadership? Well, this is a very good question because um, a lot a lot of people know the distinction. So I'm glad you've asked that. So I'm going to walk you through a few things that are going to make it clear here. So with traditional leadership, the focus of the leader is um, an individual reality perspective. It's um, a subject object understanding of leadership. It's leader centered. Uh, it's a follower leader exchange. The focus is on me, us and them. Those are kind of the key ones, I would say. When it comes to inclusive leadership, though, 
the focus of the leader has a multiple reality perspective of leadership. There's an understanding throughout the organization. And the focus is on various forms of relationships and networks. Um, the focus is on us and all. And there's a real value um, for diversity and multiple viewpoints. And when you look at it in terms of the use of power um, in a traditional leadership environment, uh, it's seen as um, power is seen as a commodity. It's um, concentrated in certain people. It's often forceful and controlling and hierarchical. But when you have it in an inclusive leadership, the leadership approach, it's the use of power is seen as distributed throughout the system. Um, the focus is on mutual enabling practices, such as collaboration, power sharing, and empowerment. And the leader is thoughtful, reflective, transparent, you know, participating, and inclusive. And everything's very well networked. And then the final uh, comparison I'll share with you that I think will be useful to your listeners is uh, in the decision-making process. So in the traditional leadership approach, it is about directing, telling, and selling. It's giving marching orders and it's making all the decisions. It's engaging in direct and, and delegating uh, directly. But with the inclusive leadership approach, it's uh, creating a safe space for dialogue. It's setting boundaries and framing intentions. And it's creating a process for engagement, decision-making and leading as learning. So those are, I guess, the key ones I would, I would like to bring to your attention about it, the difference. And I guess the other thing that would be important to share at this point is, is really what the attributes are uh, for an inclusive leader, uh, because that's also not clear, I think, to a lot of people. And it's people who have, uh, are able to empower people. So they, they enable their direct reports to develop and excel. And they have humility. They, they admit to their mistakes. They learn from criticism and different points of view. And, and they acknowledge and seek contributions of others to overcome limitations. And the other thing would be um, they have the courage to act on conviction and principle when it's required. And, and sometimes at the risk of personal, you know, the personal risk. So, um, and, they, and they hold people accountable too. I guess that's the other thing I would share that they demonstrate confidence in their direct reports by holding them responsible for their performance and their behavior. I want to tease something else out of you as well, related to uh, to your last answer. But um, I'm I'm going to challenge you, Kelly. Okay. Uh, I'm I'm going to challenge you to uh, answer in sixty seconds or less. Okay? <laughs> All <Okay>. right. <laughs> and it's um it's it's how do you think inclusive leadership creates a, a sense of belonging? Well, I'm just going to quickly start with saying what I mean by belonging. It's the feeling of trust and acceptance, where we feel safe to be our authentic selves. And inclusive leadership creates that safe space needed for people to be themselves. So getting back to the differences I shared earlier, inclusive leaders recognize differences in cultures when conducting a meeting, for example. Someone from one culture may see interrupting as a sign of disrespect and so doesn't speak up much. The person, though, is then labeled as being not engaged when, in fact, that's not the case. But an inclusive leader is aware of these cultural differences and points it out at the beginning of a meeting and says, hey, you know, um, if you need to say something, just raise your hand and I'll make sure you're next in line in the queue to speak. What people don't realize is that belonging is good for business. And um, there's been recent studies about this, which is really interesting to me, um, how it benefits the bottom line. People who felt they belong in the workplace are, are linked to an incredible 56% in job performance, 50% um, 
drop in turnover risk and 74% risk or sorry, reduction in sick days. So it's putting this in perspective that a company who employs like 10,000 people would result in having a savings of more than $52 million. So it's mind blowing. Um, it also helps to um, improve performance, the sense of belonging, uh, improve, they, they say, cognitive tasks, um, reduce, uh, create the opportunity to problem solve, um, those sorts of things. So when people are engaged in the decision making, they feel empowered to bring forward their ideas. They feel connected to social issues that matter to them. And you can get them energized um, in your workforce and get them bragging about your organization through social media, through talking about how great their company is doing various things. And, and those things all just is a win win for everybody. Did okay. I make the 60 second cut? You did not make the 60 second cut. <laughs> it was interesting. It was interesting. So you're, you're forgiven. Uh, but definitely not sixty seconds. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, in, in terms of in terms of the HR function and and, and corporate mandates around uh, how to be better treat your employees, frankly, what, what's what's actually changed? Okay, not not all the hyperbole about what should be changing right now because of everything that's happened since George Floyd's murder. But what's actually changed about diversity, equity, and inclusion programs since that point? Well, this one will be a shorter answer. Um, I would say there's a greater focus on anti-racism, as you pointed out with George Floyd. Uh, but the conversation in general has moved from what used to be, in my mind, gender focused to inclusion in all its facets, which means um, race, uh, religion, uh, for us new Canadians, um, sexual orientation, Indigenous people, people living with disabilities, the whole range of inclusion. So it used to be a conversation about diversity and inclusion. It's now becoming more of inclusion and diversity. So I would say that's what's been going on in the last year. Have you been surprised by anything during your journey, doing your work? I've had a couple of things. So one on the positive I could talk about is um, with men, I've been very excited. Like I, I obviously was working on this to see change, but I've been extremely excited to see how many executives are onboarding this. So when I when I'm able to articulate the value proposition um, and I'm able to show them how they can actually make a difference with their behaviors as the leader, uh, there's uptake happening um, right now. For example, I'm in the process of developing an allies toolkit for a sector wide initiative that I'm co-leading with uh, an, an institution in that sector. And I'm bringing together a focus group of executive men to ensure that the toolkit resonates with them. And I have all kinds of names of presidents and VPs coming forward to wanna to partake. So it's great. So that's, I would say one positive thing. The best so positive thing that I've been surprised about is um, it's just how women are with women. I've been operating in this field and um, for a while and I found that senior women, women who have been working in, this, in, in any job um, and especially those at the executive level for about 20, 25 years, have had to operate within a male-dominated uh, workplace structure, and they've become some uh, much like that, you know. And what I'd like to see going forward is that women realize that they get greater mileage from cooperating with each other than competing with each other. So it's more of like a one plus one is three concept, and um, you know, obviously, more ideas will germinate from greater support, and I think more traction will be made on this issue. Now, then, as I mentioned in my intro, Kelly. Uh, one of the, one of the reasons why you're super cool is because you're also uh, an author of a pretty impressive book. Uh, your your August 2020 book 
called Lead the Change, the Competitive Advantage of Gender Diversity and Inclusion. Why don't you take a minute or two now and tell our listeners a bit about that? Okay, well, there were a lot of books out there. First of all, thanks for calling me cool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there were a lot of books out there on this issue, but from a very dry academic lens or a very strong feminist lens, and none of which were connecting to leaders and decision makers. And there wasn't anything that was really succinct in one spot about the why and the how. So my book filled that void. It's an easy to read, logical approach to explaining this kind of fuzzy conversation. Um, And it explains the value proposition and provides a blueprint for leaders on how to take action right now. It lowers that fog index um, and gives clarity on this often seemingly confusing issue and gives a clear path forward. So how you can start to take action right now, right today. And by the end of it, you're certain you know how, uh, why you're doing this and you see the benefits of having a plan of action and you start getting your organization moving from start to sustainability. And no doubt one day I'm going to be uh, probably in the next year writing a second book because of all the research I've done uh, to date uh, this year. But uh, but yeah, I think for now people will benefit from understanding uh, the why and the how in, in concrete terms. Okay, but just to be clear, you're, you're also promising the listeners here today that there's going to be a second book where they can they can get more answers. Uh, I, I, I can get you to attest to that right now, can I? I'm a little afraid to answer that, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you there are some helpful reports on my website that would be a teaser to the second book. That, that almost sounds like an exclusive to me, listeners. <laughs> um, now then, uh, I believe that you're also starting a, a podcast series in, in April called... Uh, well, it's, it's specifically focused on uh, DNI in the in the forest sector. I'm not quite sure of the name. Perhaps you can tell me. Um, tell our listeners a little bit about that in 60 seconds or less. Okay, so it's called Free to Grow, and the I, I co-lead this initiative in a sector uh, in the forest sector um, that is changing, frankly, the forest sector on this topic. So generally, a very male-dominated traditional sector, uh, a lot of white faces um and we're trying to excuse me in the last this is a three-year project in the last three years we've been doing all kinds of cool stuff and i i recommend you go check it out at uh, free to grow in forestry.ca um there's everything you want to know about it and one of the latest things is my uh, is an idea to do a podcast so we can interview everyone across the sector including experts outside who have value add on dni if it's being an ally or how to do inclusive leadership, things like that. But really getting at um, all the various pieces of inclusion that we spoke about earlier, like the people with disabilities, uh, ethnicities, um, genders, et cetera, uh, C-suites right down to people in the, working in the forest, like the whole gamut will be interviewed in an effort to start sharing um, information with each other on what's going on. And I, I think this is gonna be extremely helpful and powerful in the communications effort on shifting the workplace culture in the forest sector. Well, kudos to you for starting a podcast. Uh, now, some some podcasts, they they, they offer uh, different questions to every interviewee, just like you and I, we've got some pretty cool, unique content coming up today with unique questions. Um, mm-hmm. Others follow a little bit of a format and they have, a, they have like, you know, standing questions in their interviews. And I just like to say that if you wanted to include that, I think a great question could be around 
you know, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody <laughs> can hear it, does it still make a noise? I, I just, I just think it's really good, 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 good one, tree. Good one, Bill. Good one. Yes, <laughs> good one. Um, I, I don't think you're going to take it, but okay. Uh, and then, <laughs> just, just finally for today, taking Kimmy. it under advisement. How about that? <laughs> I'll take that. Um, just finally for today, Kelly, how, how can our listeners connect with you? So whether that's through uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, maybe you want to share your email, uh, URLs, and also how can they get a copy of your book? All right. So my website is uh, www.centerforsocialintelligence.ca. And that is center in the Canadian way. So C-E-N-T-R-E and then F-O-R, socialintelligence.ca. That's my website. You can get the book there. You can get all kinds of other uh, resources there. See more about what I'm doing with uh, sector initiatives, etc. Um, you can purchase the book at amazon.com or amazon.ca. .ca provides reviews. Don't ask me why they don't connect .ca with .com for reviews, but Amazon does not. So that's where another source. The other place is chapters. It's in chapters in Canada. So you can get it online, chapters.ca. It's also an audible format. I should also point that out. Okay, perfect. Well, that just leaves me to say for today, Kelly Cooper, thank you very much for joining me on this episode of the HR Chat Show. Thank you, Bill. It's been absolutely a pleasure. And listeners, as always, until next time, happy working and please do continue to stay safe. Thank you for listening to the HR Chat Podcast, brought to you by the HR Gazette.